topic for today is uh, planetary systems, so we're continuing to sort of narrow our focus down towards the, the habitats of life as we know it, namely uh, uh, planets and perhaps planets like the Earth. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, the origin of these planets or their formation. Uh, one of the th uh, factors that's going to control the abundance of life in the universe is how frequently there are habitats for life, how common they are, and as we currently understand it, uh, and I, I keep putting in these little caveats because clearly uh, we only have the single example of life on Earth, so we're doing a, a, a huge extrapolation from, uh, from one person. It uh, reminds me a little bit, I have a nephew who when he was like four years old uh, was taken by his parents to see his first movie, which was the I think it must have been the, about 1980s or so, remake of King Kong. So every time after that, when he heard somebody had been to a movie, he always said, what was the big monkey doing? Uh, and and uh, that's, that's sort of how astrophysicists and to a so, certain extent astrobiologists think about uh, life in the universe. We've only seen the one movie here on Earth, and so uh, we assume that what's important you know, what was an important part of the movie here will be an important part of the movie, you know, all movies. So he thought all, all movies had giant uh, apes in them. So um, what we're going to be looking at today is this, I, the question of, of how planets like the Earth in particular uh, might form. So this, it turns out, is closely related to the question. I always forget to do that. Thanks, TC. The... Uh, always uh, is closely related to the question of um, star formation. We believe stars and planets form together. So uh, we're, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the current status of this theory, uh, what it needs to explain, which, what the theory needs to explain, which are the properties of the solar system and exoplanetary systems. Exoplanets are uh, planets orbiting stars other than the sun. Uh, then I'm going to show you a bunch of observations of star and planet formation in progress. Uh, one advantage we have of, uh, in trying to understand the, uh, uh, planet formation is we don't have to uh, rely entirely on archaeological evidence, so to speak, in, in the solar system, a, a, a planetary system that formed about five billion years ago. We can, in fact, watch other systems in the process of formation uh, to a limited degree and get some information. Now, um, then I'll describe to you the standard theoretical scenario uh, in some detail and tell you about uh, some of the open questions, uh, tell you about something called orbital migration, which is the movement of planets from the orbits in which they form to new orbits. Um, I, sh I should clarify here, I'll use that word migration. Uh, I once taught this course and discovered later that uh, this this uh, word from biology was uh, being taken too literally. It doesn't mean the planets go to one place and then come back later to spawn or something like that. Uh, it, it just means move. Um, um, astronomers use evolution when they mean change and migration when they mean movement and, and so on. Um, and then I'll give you some summary. And at the end, if there's time, I want to talk about a, uh, pens the idea of panspermia, which is the idea that uh, life may have been transferred between planets 
uh, perhaps most plausibly during these uh, early periods when the planets were forming. Okay, now uh, as far as the current status of, of, of star and planet formation, uh, this is sort of the polar opposite to um, what we talked about uh, last time with the structure and evolution of stars, where we have a very solid understanding based on first principles physics and elaborately checked with observations, as I gave you a very brief overview of last time. The, the questions of how stars and planets form uh, is very much a, a research frontier, one that you know, every, um, nearly every day new papers appear uh, from researchers trying to uh, understand it more closely, and many uh, aspects of it are quite controversial and uncertain. There's divergent ideas on how planets form. Just to make it less confusing, I'm going to stick to the sort of best overall consensus view, but it's not the, the only ideas people have. Um, our understanding of this is surely incomplete uh, and, and very likely wrong in some ways or another. So uh, caveat emptor, some of what I will tell you today probably isn't true. Um, and to sort of put an accent on that observation, the theory of uh, star formation and planetary system formation uh, was developed, the, the basic ideas were developed largely uh, to explain the properties of the solar system. That was the only planetary system that was known at the time. And when we began to discover other planetary systems about 15, well, now 17 years ago, um, when you check them against this theory, you found very few successful predictions of the theory and, and some outright uh, inconsistencies and, and uh, missed predictions. So uh, that's another hint that our, you know, or more than a hint, a strong indication that, uh, that, that our theoretical understanding here is incomplete. And one of the things I would like you to absorb today when we get to that part is why this problem is so difficult and why we understand it uh, so relatively poorly uh, as we do. Um, all those caveats aside, there is a, one fairly well-established consensus view of ex at least what the major effects and the major stages of the process are. Uh, I wouldn't you know, bet my life that it's correct, uh, but you know, maybe I'd bet my dog. The, uh, the <laughs> uh, it, it looks pretty good. Um, so, what are the uh, properties of the solar system? Well, you, this is something uh, you probably all uh, studied at some level or another, and all the way from grade school on up, the, the schools like to revisit the topic. Uh, every few years at different levels of sophistication. So I, have the, I assume that you know, roughly speaking, that uh, uh, this slide was made before Pluto was demoted. Please disregard Pluto, uh, which is no longer considered a planet, but a dwarf planet. Uh, but it doesn't make much difference. Uh, you know that the uh, solar system is a series of planets, the familiar Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, uh, circling uh, the sun uh, in uh, orbits that uh, of 
sort of almost geometrically increasing uh, uh, radius. You can see these take, take ever bigger steps out. And the system is completely dominated by Jupiter. This is the ma these are the masses of the planets. And you'll notice that Jupiter is more massive than everything else combined. So in a kind of mass approximation, there's only one planet in the solar system of any consequence. Uh, and uh, if you threw Jupiter out, there would still only be one, because Saturn dominates everything that's left. And even if you threw Saturn out, Neptune would have more mass than everything else combined, although not by much. So it's not such a big step there. So, so it's, it's hierarchical both in the sense of uh, distances from, from the solar system, sort of, you know, these sort of go out almost by multiples, and uh, uh, also in the sense that the mass is, you know, one big lump and then a bunch of little ones, and you throw that away, and what's left is one big lump, and so on. So this uh, is a, uh, an important pattern in the solar system. This last chart shows the eccentricity, or the departure, of the orbits from being circular, uh, and uh, the main point, which I don't know how well you can read the numbers on the screen from up here, it looks blurry, but these are uh, small departures from uh, circularity. 10% is about here, and uh, Pluto, again, we disregard. Only Mercury is significantly uh, out of the round. So the orbits are almost circular in the solar system. And there's a little cartoon picture up there to compare them to the sun. Oh, you could say this about, you could extend this in the other direction, too. Not only does Jupiter dominate the planets, but the sun dominates the solar system. So the sun's hundreds of times more, ma about 300 times more massive than, uh, or more than that, maybe, uh, than uh, uh, Jupiter. So what would you like uh, a theory of planet for and star formation to explain, particularly planets? Well, you obviously don't expect a theory that, you know, predicts exactly that Jupiter will be here with this much mass and the Earth will be there with that much mass and that orbit and things like that. You would rather... Uh, imagine that uh, getting, hoping to have an explanation of some of the general features of the solar system and, uh, of plan and hopefully, uh, or would imagine, that might apply to planetary systems in general. Um, so here are some of the things that people aim at. You know, why are, is the number of planets sort of not, uh, you know, roughly what it is? Uh, not, you know, a million, not uh, one. Uh, why are the masses distributed like they are? Why are the compositions uh, uh, such as they are? And I think, yeah, I forgot to talk about this slide. This is the distribution of densities of the planets. And what you can see here is there's a set of inner planets, uh, which are uh, high-density uh, planets, uh, which have densities of around 5, 4, or 5, uh, to six grams per cubic centimeter. This is sort of the density of uh, Professor Onsat's business, that is to say rocks. Uh, uh, so these are, we say, rocky planets. Uh, and then out here uh, are uh, objects, the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and so on, 
have much lower densities, down around one or two grams per cubic centimeter, more like the densities of ice or ices or water. And Saturn, in fact, has such a low density that it's less than one gram per cubic centimeter. So if you had a, which is the density of water, liquid water, so if you had a, a sufficiently large ocean, you could toss Saturn into it and it would float there. Um, and these planets are made very much of uh, hydrogen and helium and ices uh, of the heavy elements. Here we have rocky planets. So you would like to know, explain something about the compositions. You would like to know why the orbits are the sizes they are, and the orbits also tell you the periods of the circulation, so the sort of years of the planet, why the eccentricities are like they are, uh, why there's such a good alignment of the inclinations. And what that means is the fact, uh, it's so familiar we almost forget to mention it, that all the planets orbit around the sun roughly in a single plane. You know, they're all going around like this. It's not like some are going over the top and at all different angles. They're kind of, you know, a plane, a planar system. Uh, you would like to understand the level of interactions and stability in the solar system. Uh, the fact that the solar system uh, is to some extent full of sort of small solar systems, that is to say, the planets tend to have moons orbiting them, so especially the larger planets, multiple moon systems, which also have uh, tend to orbit in one plane and have fairly circular orbits and distributions of masses that aren't so different. Uh, there's, there's sort of tiny little uh, uh, solar systems, or so to speak, systems embedded in, uh, in our planetary system. And in fact, it was the uh, discovery by Galileo when he first uh, turned the uh, telescope, his, the first tele person to look at the sky through a telescope, um, in about 1610, just about 400 years ago, he watched the moons of uh, Jupiter orbiting Jupiter, and that was such a convincing analogy. I mean, you can, act, you, you can do that. Jupiter is quite prominent in the sky now. This uh, department has open houses. You can come and, and watch, and if you watch over you know, hours or a few days, you'll, you can actually see the moons move around the planet. This was such a convincing uh, kind of miniature model of the Copernican idea of the solar system that the planets orbit the sun, uh, that it largely uh, carried the day and convinced people that it wasn't that the sun orbited the Earth, uh, the so-called Ptolemaic system. Uh, there are a lot of other small bodies in the solar system, asteroids, meteors, comets, you'd like to understand something about those. And uh, in particular, those play an important role uh, in the history of life on Earth through their collisions with the Earth, through bombardment. So you would like to understand uh, something about that, too. So the list of things we would like a good theory of the, uh, the formation of planetary systems to explain is fairly long and demanding. Uh, uh, and perhaps given what I said at the beginning, you won't be surprised to hear that, you know, that we don't really understand most of these things very well yet. But that's, that's what we're headed for, some of them a bit. Now, uh, starting in 1995, the situation was uh, greatly complicated, but advanced also, by the discovery of so-called exoplanetary systems, or exoplanets. That's also, they're also referred to as extrasolar planets, and uh, both words will uh, come uh, out of my mouth from time to time, but there's no distinction between the man meaning of exoplanet and extrasolar planet. Uh, some, some people in the field 
have very strong feelings about which one we should use, but uh, I'm not one of them. Uh, so I kind of migrate back and forth. Um, but um, what the discovery of exoplanets uh, gave us was some insight into the actual variety uh, of different planetary systems. We no longer had uh, just the solar system to go on. And in a way, it was like, you know, what happened to my nephew when he got older and got to see lots of movies. You know, he, he figured out a lot of things about movies that he couldn't possibly have figured out uh, having just seen one. And uh, this has brought, made the study of exoplanets one of the hottest fields of astronomy for the last 15 or so years. It's growing uh, explosively, attracts uh, more and more of the, um, you know, uh, young researchers and so on. And um, we will talk in the um, latter part of the course, when I uh, reappear up here at the front of the room uh, in December, there'll be at least two lectures where we'll just concentrate on exoplanetary systems. I want to visit the topic only very briefly right now, uh, just to give you some insight into what extra challenges the, the study of exoplanets has given to uh, to theories of, of planet formation. And, um, you know, the kind of generic surprise was these exoplanetary systems did not turn out, many, many of them do not look like a kind of another version of the solar system, you know, sort of basically the same general properties, but just in detail different. Instead, you know, they looked, in many cases, qualitatively different. Um, to stretch this metaphor, I'll leave it alone after this. You know, it was my nephew discovered that not only do other movies not have large monkeys in them, they don't even have large animals in them, and they may not be about, you know, any of the same themes or topics at all, so they're, like, completely different. That's sort of what we learned about planetary systems. And it's true in a variety of ways. The planets can be much more massive than Jupiter, up to ten times the mass of Jupiter or more. Uh, we now know... Uh, and, and there appear to be many uh, low-mass planets. One of the biggest surprises is that these exoplanets orbit very close to their star in many cases. The uh, first exoplanetary system that was discovered was found to uh, have a, um, a planet roughly the size of Jupiter uh, orbiting so close to its star that it was way inside the orbit of uh, Mer where, where the orbit of Mercury would have been in our um, solar system. So, you know, instead of the big planets being far out uh, on the outer edges of the planetary system uh, as they are in our solar system, we had gi giant planets hugging the star much closer with periods of only a few days. The shorter, closer the uh, planet is to the star, uh, the, the shorter the orbital period by your familiar one over root g rho. You can work out how the, you should be able to think about how the orbital time will scale with distance from that. And uh, so instead of uh, having uh, some time, an orbital time like 90 days for an orbit, which is what Mercury's orbital period is, these planets had only a few day orbital periods uh, and were very hot instead of being very cold like the planets on the outside. Uh, Moreover, the orbits were very eccentric. Eccentricities of several tenths are common, meaning this planet is a several, 
you know, tens of percent closer to the star at one time than another. And, and even much more eccentric orbits up to 0.9 and so on were common. So the orbits are not very circular in many of these systems. Often the planets are in orbital resonances. That means one will have a period that's an integer multiple of another. So you'll have a planet going around in, say, a 100-day orbit, and then one in a 200-day orbit, and then one in a 400-day orbit. So there, these, uh, that means every time this one goes around two times, that one's come back to the same place, and you come back to the same configuration. These are very special uh, orbital patterns, which we see in some of the moon systems in the solar system, but not among uh, the planets. And a few of these systems are, di- what I mean by unstable, is dynamically unstable, meaning that their orbits cannot be st- uh, the same over periods of billions of years. They're mutual, interactual, gra- mutual inter- gravitational interactions will uh, cause their orbits to change dramatically with time. Whereas in the solar system, uh, the orbits of the planets are currently stable for long periods. Now, the most uh, naive conclusion from this is that the solar system must be a very, very unusual type of object a very unusual uh, planetary system. And um, that would have a potentially very negative implication for life in the universe. If we live in a planetary system uh, which has unusual properties, there's at least the possibility that those unusual properties are what make life possible here. And uh, that planetary systems that have very different properties may not be suitable uh, uh, places for life. This is just like Uh, when we discussed in the first lecture cosmology, if it turned out we lived in a part of the universe that was, you know, completely different elements and uh, physical properties than other distant parts of the universe, then that would lead you to think that life couldn't be anywhere. So the fact that other planetary systems, um, first of all, the fact that they exist is good news. Before about 1995, we didn't actually know of any planets outside of uh, our own solar system, which would have, and if there weren't any, that would have been, or they were extremely rare, that would have been very bad news for, um, for uh, uh, life in the universe. So that's the good news. There are planets out there. The bad news looks like uh, that they are often uh, quite different from uh, the planets uh, in the solar system, and in particular the Earth. On the other hand, at a slightly more sophisticated level, that's not necessarily the right conclusion that the solar system is very unusual. Because as it turns out, the solar system would be quite hard to detect. And uh, in, the, in December, we'll talk in detail about how we detect uh, 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 other planetary systems. But it turns out that many of these properties by, in which the other planetary systems differ from ours they differ in ways that make us easier for them to find, for us to find them. And we can only just barely find them. Uh, uh, so it's a stretch. That's why none were known until 1995. By the way, this comes as a big surprise to, to, to many people in the, in the uh, you know, non-specialist public that we didn't really know about planets outside the solar system until uh, you know, the mid-90s. Because if you watch science fiction or something, you know, it's just full of planets, the star, you know, star Trek or whatever is always going from one planet to another. If you read the books, you get the impression that they're common. And it was widely believed they were probably common, but we didn't actually know until relatively recently. 
But we don't actually know how rare the solar system is. There could be quite a lot of analogs of the solar system out there. And one of the important questions that's really right at the forefront of exoplanet research these days is, is how common or uncommon uh, are solar system-like exoplanetary systems, and what exactly do we mean by being like the solar system, in what ways, to what extent, and so on. All right. So that's what we're aiming to, um, uh, to try to understand. And um, unlike the uh, situation with stars, as I've already said, we're not in a position in this topic to just write down a, a slide full of equations and stick them in the um, computer and calculate you know, what comes out the other end. That's, this problem is far too hard for that. Uh, for reasons uh, which I've, I've yet to show you, uh, but will. And um, the, um, so what we do, uh, or what we, we very frequently do in astronomy with many problems and many areas of science, we look to the data to give us a lead. We look to observations of what's going on in the sky. So for the next bit, I'm going to try to describe to you some of the observations of, um, of the uh, star formation and protoplanetary disks and planet formation uh, in progress. Uh, and I get to show you some pretty pictures. Uh, this, is, this particular picture is a very famous Hubble Space Telescope picture. You may have noticed, if you see a lot of Hubble Space Telescopes, this little, a lot of them have this little cutout in them. This is this is sometimes referred to as the bat wing for some reason. Uh, the, the reason that's there is they ran out of money for detectors, <laughs> amazingly enough. Uh, so uh, the, the detectors were quite expensive. But, uh, so, so lots of Hubble pictures uh, have this uh, weird geometry. So what this picture shows, is, uh, I mean, it kind of looks almost biological, doesn't it? But... Uh, uh, this is actually a, a star-forming region uh, in which you see a very heavily obscured, these things that look like solid objects are not solid objects. They're actually a vacuum better than the best vacuums we can make on Earth. But they have excess dust in them, and it's enough dust over long distances. This, this distance here is... Uh, I forget now whether it's, I think it's about 20 light years, or maybe it's six light years. I can never remember whether it's parsecs or light years. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's many, many trillions of miles. So a tiny little distance in this picture uh, corresponds to a, a distance far larger than, you know, the solar system even, never mind the Earth. And uh, there are regions in the interstellar medium which are filled with rather dense material and a lot of dust. And what we see in these regions, as I'll be showing you in other slides, are stars forming, collapsing, and cooling, and uh, starting to shine that are formed out of this very dense uh, material. And the general physical state uh, of the interstellar medium, interstellar medium just means the medium, the material between the stars, uh, is that it's a, it's a very diffuse, low density, by terrestrial standards, even the high-density regions are low-density 
by terrestrial standards, uh, uh, medium which has, many, has multiple phases. And what I mean by a phase is a combination of density and pressure. Different parts of this diagram, I mean density and temperature. Different parts of this diagram, uh, the gas and is at different temperatures and densities. And the, the multiphase medium uh, is in rough pressure equilibrium. So what that means is uh, that you know, if I go to one region of space where the density is one value and the temperature is one value, and then I go to some other region where the density and temperature have quite different values, the pressure in those two regions will be about the same. Is it obvious why that should be so? Why is the pressure always about the same? What if it wasn't? Yes? A little louder, please. If the pressure was low somewhere, everything would get pushed into that spot. Right. So if I, if I have two regions which are at very different pressure, the high pressure region will expand and push on the low density region and, and fill it up. But of course, as it expands, the density will drop. I mean, the pressure will drop until, until we get back to pressure equilibrium. So you can't have, it's not an exact pressure equilibrium. Pressure is not exactly the same everywhere. But if, if it were not at least roughly the same, the low-density regions would be being crushed. I mean, not the low-density. The low-pressure regions would be being crushed by the high-pressure regions. Now, the pressure of an ideal gas is just NKT. So uh, well, that's Boltzmann's constant. This is the number density of particles, and this is their temperature. So NT is roughly a million degrees Kelvin times uh, over uh, you know, centimeters cubed. So the density of particles times the temperature has to be measured in particles per cubic centimeter and, and temperature in degrees Kelvin is about a million in the interstellar medium. And there are regions where the density is about one and the temperature is about a million degrees and there's regions where the density is as high as, say, 100,000, and the temperature is only about 10 degrees. So these two variables, N and T, can vary over a huge range while holding this constant. And what you're looking at in this picture is contrast between very low-density hot regions and very high-density low-temperature regions. That's not obvious from just looking at the picture, but detailed studies and using various techniques for measuring the density and temperature uh, reveal this. Now, the star formation comes about um, in a very small volume of the interstellar medium, uh, which is the highest density and lowest temperature uh, regions, uh, which are called, uh, referred to as molecular clouds, these molecular, are, they're called molecular clouds because the densities get high enough and the temperatures get low enough that many molecules form. So the gas in these sorts of regions is, you know, at temperatures of only tens of degrees Kelvin, much, much colder than, say, in this room, uh, can easily form bound molecules. We'll look at what some of those molecules are. Uh, and, but they're made up of the heavy elements that were synthesized in the stars, uh, that we talked about last time. And moreover, these molecules play a key role in 
the dynamics and cooling and formation of these interstellar clouds. So these uh, heavy elements, metals as I call them, or as astronomers call them, that were ejected from the stars uh, play a major role in influencing the character of the interstellar medium. Is that a question? Are those red dot stars? Yes. These red dots are stars buried in the dust. They're not stars that are actually red. They're stars that are very hot and blue. Uh, We'll be looking at them more carefully in a minute. But the (laughs) dust scatters the blue light preferentially. It's just why the sun looks red when it's setting. So these are newborn stars peeping out of the dust status. Um, um, Now, this, this dust and gas and these dust and molecules are sufficiently fragile that the radiation from the hot regions, which is in the X-ray range, would destroy it uh, easily. But um, instead of, uh, the reason that doesn't happen is the ga- the den- it's dense enough, the molecules and dust are dense enough that the radiation doesn't get into the centers of the cloud. And they only evaporate the outside. So if you look at some of these like interesting looking regions, what you're seeing in these little wisps of, of, of material is the dense material being gradually evaporated by the radiation from the hot regions. So there's a strong dynamic interplay between these, uh, these uh, cold, dusty, molecule-rich regions and the hot, uh, ionized regions. Uh, and, but what we're most interested in is what happens in the uh, heart of darkness, if I can throw in a literary reference, right down in the middle of the uh, molecular clouds where it's darkest and coldest and densest. The cloud can venture over a threshold where gravity suddenly starts becoming uh, the dominant force and making a piece of the cloud collapse, and these collapses produce the stars. We'll be looking at that in in more detail in a moment. Uh, Let me just emphasize uh, what I mean by um, um, uh, being molecule rich. These are spectra of of some of the uh, uh, regions of, of molecular clouds, which show things like carbon dioxide, uh, and even carbon dioxide ice, which is on the uh, dust grains, silicates, which is uh, a word for rocky type material, uh, and uh, uh, so on. We will, uh, this is ammonia, uh, and no, ammonia is NH3, sorry. Uh, but as you'll see, there can be some quite uh, uh, a lot of, of, of molecules. Here's water, that's our friend, uh, if we're life, and uh, so on. And uh, the study of these, um, these molecular constituents of the dense phases of the interstellar medium and how they're associated with young stars and protostars is a, is a major area of um, uh, the observational study of star formation. Here's a very partial list of, uh, I think the, the total list now would have more than 100 entries of molecules that have been uh, discovered in uh, um, interstellar, uh, in these uh, dense molecular clouds. 
And uh, the, by far the one that dominates the mass of the cloud, the most important one, uh, is just molecular hydrogen, H2. Now, that we can't see very well. It turns out, even though uh, it's, a, it's a very major constituent, there's no, it doesn't have good observational signatures by which we can see it. But uh, there's all sorts of molecules. And when we, we come to the section of the course where you study the chemistry of life, uh, you'll see that uh, many of these molecules are of the sorts that we think are key in getting life started on the Earth. These are al- there's already a rich organic chemistry uh, in, the, in the regions in which the stars are forming. Uh, you know, so methane and so on is quite important. Here is the uh, uh, molecule of choice on the street. Uh, that's uh, ethyl alcohol. And uh, just to give you a sense of how dilute this material is, I, it's, a, it's hard to describe this in words because I keep going back and forth between saying it's dense and it's low density. And, of course, it depends on what I'm comparing it to. It's dense compared to the rest of the interstellar medium. But to give you some sense of how thin the material between the stars is, what low density it is, a, a kind of rough calculation that... Uh, is amusing to do is suppose you wanted to have a cocktail and you had a cocktail glass and you wanted to sweep it through the material between the stars until you had enough ethyl alcohol you know to make your gin and tonic or whatever it was you wanted to have how far would you have to sweep it if I spread all the molecules in the in the galaxy out the answer is more or less once all the way through the galaxy would would give you you know, that's about 30,000 light years, roughly speaking. And then you'd have, you know, a, a jigger full of alcohol. Uh, you'd have a lot of other junk, too, so you'd, you'd want to do some, probably wouldn't want to drink it directly. Um, not to mention the fact that it's at 10 degrees Kelvin, so, but anyway. So, um, uh, a big problem with studying uh, star and planet formation is that the molecules and dust grains uh, out of which the stars form are more or less opaque to uh, visible light, even though the density is so low, the distances are so large, that we can hardly see what's going on uh, in uh, visible light until, um, <clears throat> until the stars burn through the dust around them and they're... they're pop out into view almost, but by that point, the process is almost over. This is an example of a star-forming region, NGC 1333. Uh, NGC just means New General Catalog, a 19th century catalog of, um, of objects in the sky. And um, all of this dark material is obscuring the action. So we have to look with uh, in rate using radio and mi- microwave and millimeter wave techniques to penetrate the dust, we can't really see very well at optical wavelengths. So if we look at this, is actually the same objects, this and this, but here we have looked in the emission line of a rare isotope, a thirteen carbon thirteen uh, carbon monoxide made with the isotope. Uh, you know, isotope of carbon that has a weight of 13 instead of 12. The common isotope is 12. And carbon 13 is rare enough 
that we can see through the cloud in that uh, wavelength, and we can see more of what's going on. And these colors code whether the material is approaching us or in red receding from us or somewhere in between. And what you see here is this overall complex is spinning in a sort of disorganized way. One side of it's approaching us, the other side of it's receding from us. So we have a big cloud of, of molecular gas that is in a sort of chaotic way spinning. And the reason I say chaotic you know, is this is not like a rainbow. It doesn't run smoothly from red to blue, one end to the other. There's places where the motions are, are chaotic and different. Um, in a few places, we are lucky enough uh, to be able to see what's going on more clearly because a few massive stars have formed. Uh, these, In this case, these four stars uh, in the trapezium uh, and are burning away the gas, uh, the dense molecular gas and dust in the surrounding region and uncovering some little objects which are actually star formation and planet formation in progress. And in the further slides, we're going to zoom in on those. Uh, do, um, so when massive stars form, we've already Describe, uh, discuss their particularly high luminosity and they can kind of burn a window in which if we happen to be sitting in the right place and looking in the right direction uh, lets us get a good peep at what's going on uh, in these star forming regions. Does anybody know where the trapezium is in the sky? You've almost certainly seen it. Hmm? Uh, no, not the Big Dipper, but an almost as familiar constellation. It's in Orion, the middle, uh, in Orion's sword, the middle star in the belt is not really a single star. It's this little collection of stars, and with binoculars you can see that. That's the nearest major star-forming region to the Earth, and much of what we think we know about star formation comes from studying that, that region. Here's some blow-ups of some of those little objects I pointed out uh, over here. Uh, now this is zoomed in to a, with the Hubble Space Telescope. That's what HST means. And what we see is these funny uh, uh, shaped objects, in many cases, which are called proplids uh, for irradiated protoplanetary disks. I, uh, deny any responsibility for such a bizarre word. Uh, and what we typically see is a shell of hot material, which is transparent, embedded in which there's a little disk, uh, which we can see edge on or more face on, of extraordinarily dark and dense material now. So within this high-density molecular cloud, there are buried little hot spots um, which have in their middles uh, yet darker uh, objects. Here are some more examples. This is like utterly opaque. And these are, uh, over here is one, these are the um, disks of material, uh, and I'll, you'll be hearing more in a moment about why, what the significance of disks in this process, but you can 
see we're looking at a sort of edge-on thing here. And the scales uh, are marked here, these size scales, 250 AU, 500 AU, so on, are now marked in AU. An AU is an astronomical unit of distance. Uh, called the uh, it's called the astronomical unit, and it's equal to the distance between uh, the Earth and the Sun. And for instance, uh, Neptune's orbit is about 30 AU in radius. So Neptune is about uh, 30 AU out. So if you consider Neptune the last planet, then the size of the solar system is about in diameter is about 60 AU. And that's beginning to get down. These are somewhat larger objects, obviously, but not enormously larger. We're able to probe down to something close to the scale of the solar system. And these days we do even a bit better. Here are just some more examples from a, a, another uh, star-forming region in Taurus where we're looking edge-on. These are selected to be cases where we're looking edge-on. This sort of science fiction-y looking beam of material uh, coming out here is uh, uh, called a polar jet. It's believed the disk and star are spinning like this and material shooting up out of this disk and down below it. This is fairly common uh, phenomena, uh, almost completely not understood, however. Um, here's one of the better recent pictures of a, a disk now face-on. Uh, and uh, infrared light, uh, this one uh, obtained with the Subaru telescope rather than HST. And uh, you can, at this level of uh, detail, you're beginning to see the, uh, you know, the swirling structure of a uh, rotating disk of material around a central uh, dark region. And uh, whether these dark lanes are Places where the disk is lower density or places where it's more obscured by dust uh, are, are topics of study these days. Um, now, that uh, completes our sort of review of the observation. So how do we try to put this big, this sort of complicated, messy uh, set of observations together into a story of, of uh, a theory of where the stars come from. So that's what I want to describe to you next. Um, the basic idea uh, is that the stars, which we talked about last time, um, make heavy elements and then die in various ways, in supernova explosions, in planetary nebulae, and so on, expel material which goes into these multiple components of the interstellar medium. H2 means ionized hydrogen, H1 means neutral hydrogen, and coronal gas is like million or two million degree gas. So these are these different uh, uh, phases of the interstellar medium that are roughly in uh, pressure equilibrium that we talked about. Uh, they interact with each other uh, by heating and uh, cooling each other as we've discussed. But out of the cold uh, H1 gas, sometimes molecular clouds form. These are these dense, uh, high dust, high molecule content. They merge to form so-called giant molecular cloud complexes. And when regions of the giant, uh, the molecular clouds, get uh, a, a sufficiently large mass, gets to sufficiently high density, 
uh, such as the mass uh, is over something called the genes mass, which just means that the gravity is stronger than the pressure. The arguments are very much like the pressure-gravity balance uh, that we discussed uh, uh, for stars, but when the gravity dominates, these, uh, this, these little regions of the molecular cloud collapse uh, and form stars, and then you start all over again. So material sort of flows through the interstellar medium, uh, uh, and each time it flows through these loops, the stars add some uh, heavy elements to the mixture. Now, um, once the stars start forming uh, inside a molecular cloud, here are newborn stars, uh, the high-mass stars live a really short time. If I go up to 10 or 20 solar masses or something and you stick in uh, you know, that power law for lifetimes of the stars, you'll find that they're only living like a million, 10 million years. That's such a short time, the cloud is still in the process of forming other stars when they start blowing up into supernovae, and, and uh, these supernovae send shock waves out through the gas, which compress some of the gas and are believed to trigger additional generations of star formation. So some of these little regions that are kind of hovering on the edge of being able to form a star get hit by the shock wave and compressed, and then start forming stars. But at the same time, they're disrupting the cloud overall and probably something like 1% of the mass of one of these clouds gets changed into stars before it's blown apart. Uh, if, if the stars didn't blow apart the clouds, almost all the gas in the galaxy would soon be in stars, and we would, star formation wouldn't be ongoing. Um, you can model the appearance of these uh, pro pro proplids uh, in detail by uh, taking a model of a disk of gas around a forming star with a jet and hitting it with uh, a wind of high temperature gas and radiation from some nearby high mass stars and you, you, know, you get something that looks attractively like uh, one of these proplids in which we believe in the disk little irregularities are beginning to form and uh, make planets. More about that now. Now, um, here, uh, so, so this is the picture again. A dense clump of molecular gas collapses under its own gravity, forms a star in the middle, and a, uh, a disk of material rotating around it, and uh, Radiation from the star blows out uh, holes and the poles and maybe makes uh, uh, a wind. But um, the details of this process, and here really uh, is the key to why uh, this process is so poorly understood, is that it's really um, many different types of physical processes are going on in this process, which are competing and very complicated. So the collapse is controlled by gravitation in the first place with this familiar time scale, uh, which is opposed by pressure support. But there's also very important energy loss. The, as the gas tries to support itself with pressure, the temperature is reduced because radiation uh, 
mostly in lines of these molecules, escapes from the clouds. That's what we were looking at when we looked at the big thing that was turning. Uh, There's also angular momentum conservation, which is the cloud collapses with this rotation. The angular momentum is conserved, and that means it has to spin faster and faster. Angular momentum is MVR, so if I make R smaller as it collapses, V gets higher. So a little bit of the material, the material, the collapse is opposed by the spin. And the way the uh, process deals with this is it puts most of the angular momentum in a small amount of the material. That's the disk, which is held up in the directions perpendicular to its spin by its angular momentum. Uh, Magnetic fields play an important role. Uh, As the gas collapses, it compresses whatever magnetic fields are there. And the magnetic fields connect inner parts of the disk to outer parts of the disk and transport the angular momentum away from the star. Uh, There is turbulence, fragmentation, and so on and so on. So if you try to put all of this into a computer and model it, uh, you get a big headache. Um, And uh, this is is, uh, an area. uh, We have a new professor in our department this year, Evo Stryker, just joined the Princeton faculty who's a specialist in the computer modeling of this. And it's, uh, I don't mean to give you the impression that it's impossible or we make no progress, but it's, this is really uh, up against the limits of what one can easily calculate and, or what one can calculate easily or not uh, with a, uh, a computer. So we have some insights into this, but it's a very complicated, messy process with many different physical effects competing and interacting on many different scales So you're interested in one of these uh, evolutions and everything from uh, microscopic, or not quite microscopic, very tiny scales on which dust particles are forming and interacting and sticking together up to scales of tens or hundreds of AUs in which uh, material is flowing in the gravitational field and in which magnetic fields are connecting different parts and so on. So you're looking at a very wide range of different scales, a very wide range of different Uh, uh, physical processes and so on. Now, what we believe to be the stages of this process are that first the cloud is disturbed, then it collapses and fragments under its self-gravity, then uh, the accretion disk forms around the star. The accretion disk is this disk that's supported by angular momentum and material flows through it as it loses its angular momentum onto the star. this, the infalling material produces these bipolar jets in some way that isn't well known. Dust and ice particles form in the disk as it cools. Those particles stick together and gradually produce what are called planetesimals, which are objects up to maybe a kilometer or 10 kilometers in size, like asteroids, roughly speaking, and comets. The planetesimals fall together into what are called protoplanets, which are like things the size of the moon or Mars or something like that. The proto- but they're made spherical by gravity. Planetesimals are dominated by gravity. I'm sorry, protoplanets are dominated by gravity. Planetesimals are held together by material forces, by the rigidity of the rock and so on. Um, gas can fall onto the massive protoplanets from the disk, the hydrogen gas. The planets drift inwards, migrate interactions with the disks. We'll say a little more about that. Eventually, the star, which is contracting, on what time scale is the star contracting? 
it's, Kel it's Kelvin time because it doesn't have nuclear reactions yet. But as it contracts, it eventually gets so hot and dense in the middle, the nuclear reactions turn on, the star lights up, and that blows all of the remaining gas and most of the dust out of the system and more or less terminates the prog process. For a star like the sun, this happens maybe 10 to 100 million years after the, the collapse begins. The star lights up and uh, turns off the formation. So we have to um, form the planets in about that amount of time. Now, uh, we want to turn our attention to forming terrestrial planets. Terrestrial planets mean planets resembling the Earth, uh, and in particular, small rocky planets, so planets with of order the Earth's mass and of order the Earth's composition. And the standard model of that uh, looks like this. It takes around a million years to go from a gas and dust disk to a disk in which a lot of the mass is in these planetesimals, these small objects with sizes of meters up to kilometers. Uh, another 100,000 or a million years to get up to the protoplanet stage, and then another 10 to 100 million years to get up to the size of planets. And so these are just a series of uh, uh, migrations. This stage uh, involves really uh, large impacts. Um, one uh, deficit of the theory that I should point out is if you do the calculations of these time scales, I, these are not just made up numbers, these can be calculated, it kind of, you notice that it adds up to 10 million to 100 million years, which is about how long I told you we had to make the planets. So that kind of works. That's nice. It's just about right. But that's for a planet a few AU, one or a few AU from the star, similar to the Earth. If you go into the outer solar system, like where Neptune lives, where, uh, you know, 30 AU out, these time scales get much longer, more like a billion years. And... That doesn't work. You don't have that long. So we don't really understand. That's, that's one of the, an example of something where the theory seems not to agree with the, the observational constraints. And uh, recently, another professor in this department, Roman Rafikov, has put forward uh, a modified theory for what happens in the outer part of the planetary systems to hurry up to the formation of these things. Uh, I'm just trying to give you a sense of where the, where the issues are in these models. So it, they're really at very general levels of, you know, does this whole mechanism even work? Uh, it's our best guess. Now, I'm going to show you a little series of videos to illustrate all of this because I realize I, I'm trying to describe in words and pictures, you know, something that's fairly complicated. This is amusing. If the sound works on my computer, you'll... I guess it would help if I turn the sound on. You'll get to hear an amusing little NASA narration. Scientists believe that starbirth results when giant molecular clouds collapse under their own gravity. A swirling disk of gas and dust surrounds the young star. The material on the disk probably forms planets, much as happened in our own solar system. And of course the planets may support life, which is of great interest I love the way that just stops life, which is of great interest. End of story. Um, here, is, uh, a, a more, here is a simulation of just the uh, accretion of planetesimals into larger uh, objects. So I'm going to show you some PR and some actual calculations. This is a little piece of a disk in which they're uh, calculating 
the motion of the planetesimals, which is partly gravitational, but largely due to drag with the gas. So you can see the, the gas uh, sort of brings everything to the same velocities, and then they drift together and form a little bit larger lumps. Here's, now this is a substantially longer movie, several minutes long, uh, in which uh, a whole series of computer simulations are pasted together. So in each, each time uh, the picture sort of fades and is replaced by a new stage, uh, they've taken the outputs of a previous level of simulation as the inputs to the next stage. And the, the computer codes and physics and approximations and so on keep having to change at each of these uh, uh, levels so that um, you can span this very great range of, of complicated processes that I've talked about. This simulation starts with the planetesimals already formed, so it doesn't try to follow the, the stage from sort of dust to planetesimals. This moves a little slow, but when you consider we're going through like, you know, 30 million years, it's not, it's, it's sort of sped up when you think about it that way. So here are the planet, disk of planetesimals. What's happening here is they're moving the viewpoint around, so it's not that the disk is changing, it's that the direction you're looking at it from is changing, so you can see the structure better. So the computer is calculating what happens to each of the particles you can see here, or could see there. Now, we have got up uh, from planetesimals to a sort of intermediate between planetesimals and protoplanetary stages. This is just the inner part of the planetary system out to a few AU. You can see they're not quite round now, so they're still sort of semi-planetesimals. Not round means gravity isn't dominant. These, some of the fixed points of light you see in the background. Now we're up to protoplanets, I believe. You can still see there's still quite a lot of them in the inner part of this simulated planetary system. The time it takes, the real time it would take for um, one of these planets to orbit around is sort of roughly a year, just to give you a sense. And they, they have to run this for, uh, you know, like 100,000 years on the computer. But we won't watch it go around 100,000 times. I think that, did they do another fade there while I was looking away? We're up to a larger stage of planetesimals, I think. Now we have, I mean, a larger stage of protoplanets. Now, now things are, uh, you notice they're moving faster. That's because with fewer objects to keep track of, the cal uh, computer can calculate it more quickly. Uh, you can see, keep your eye on this red object, that one. 
Uh, it's not act. It's no different from the, any other of the objects, but it's been marked in red because something interesting is going to happen to it presently. But not yet. Do you notice anything about it at the moment? What? Yeah, it has a close companion. It's not actually a moon. It's not orbiting the red dot. It's orbiting in almost the same the star in almost the same orbit as the red dot and being perturbed by the gravity of the red dot. Here we go. They collided. That's roughly what happens when two uh, protoplanets collide. The whole thing gets heated up to molten temperatures. As you saw, two pieces came apart, then fell back together. And you notice everything almost stopped moving. That's because the computer had to concentrate a lot of power on calculating <laughs> what was going on in that collision. It's a collision somewhat like that but that's believed to have formed the moon. Now for this next stage of the calculation, which is you want to go on over a really a long time, uh, the uh, gas and dust has already been blown away. We're now going to do like roughly several hundred million years up to a billion the planets are averaged over their orbits. So each planet is replaced by a ring of material spread over its orbit. And you can see how the orbits affect each other. There are further collisions so the number of and ejections, so the number of planets present uh, get, uh, is reduced. The orbits uh, settle into a non-interacting. They keep interacting and scattering each other. And now we're left. Uh, this is now the endpoint of the simulation with a stable uh, inner planetary system uh, after expending a few years, a couple of years of supercomputer time or something. And there we are. That's, that, that, of course, is a little piece of artistic license. Uh, yeah, this was done. Uh, that simulation was uh, produced by the uh, Kokoritsu Tenmondai, the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan, which is one of the centers of, of these, these types of calculations. Um, that is a good piece of the theoretical picture of how we think our inner solar system formed. That's, those simulations were, in a sense, designed or their parameters were chosen to produce something that looks a bit like the inner parts of our solar system, a few rocky planets and roughly circular orbits. We also would like to understand some of these exoplanetary systems where uh, you get th these giant planets like Jupiter or several times the mass of Jupiter very close to the star. And we believe that happens because a gas giant forms far out uh, where it's cool enough for the hydrogen and helium to accrete onto the uh, massive protoplanets and form a gas giant. And then the interaction between the disk and the uh, giant planet uh, as the gas falls onto the planet, slow it down and cause it, or take energy out of its orbit more accurately and cause it to spiral inward to a more uh, uh, close-in orbit. And this is called migration. Again, it's not like fish or birds migrate. It's just, it's just a motion. Um, and here is a simulation of that process. So 
what we're going to see here uh, is th this uh, red uh, color indicates the density of a gas, which is plotted as a function of radius here. And invisibly stuck in here is a protoplanet, which is going to accrete this gas uh, and evolve in the computer. So you see the little disturbance made by the protoplanet going around here. And watch what happens to the density of the gas as, as it circles around over here. The planet's beginning to eat up most of the gas at its radius and form uh, what's called a gap. Or and to create spiral density waves uh, uh, in the material, and it, and, it, and it slowly moves inward. And the interaction between the gas, both uh, the momentum of the gas that falls onto the planet, but more importantly, its gravitational interaction with these spiral density waves, it creates itself, causes it to migrate inward. This is our best guess at how we get those gas giant planets very close in to the stars. Um, a problem with this scenario uh, is that while it does cause the gas giants to migrate inward, and this uh, amazingly was predicted by a man named Doug Lynn, uh, who's a uh, professor at the University of California, um, before uh, the gas giants were observed, he actually uh, uh, predicted this type of migration, one of the few successful predictions. The problem with it is that by the time you've dropped a... Uh, a planet all the way from, say, 5 or 10 AU where it formed into a few percent of an AU where we see the gas giants. That's a long way. It's very hard to stop it before it falls all the way into the star. Almost always, if you do these calculations, the planet ends up falling on the star and being eaten by it or disappearing into it. There's another biological metaphor being eaten. But uh, anyway, the... So that's a problem with the scenario, and one of the, one of the frontiers of research these days is trying to figure out what stops the migration. You can depend on luck and just hope the star turns on just in time and blows the gas away just before the planet was about to take the final plunge. But that model implies that many planets were eaten for every one that just happens to be, you know, the lucky one that they shut the door and turned off the migration just before, before it fell in. Uh, there are other ideas about what might stop it, but that's an example of something we don't understand. Now here's ESA, that's the European Space Agency's PR version. I think they don't have an audio track, but they do have the jets in there. So here are the gaps cleared out by planets. And the planetesimals collecting to form planets. As you can see, they they stole Ichiro Kokubo's idea of pasting the Earth on their simulation, but he had it first. Um, so, um, just to um, review, 
you know, there are many questions and puzzles in all this. I've given you the kind of overview. We don't really know exactly what causes star formation to start in a molecular cloud. Uh, we don't know what fraction of stars have planetary systems. We have some idea of that now. It's a large fraction, tens of percent at least, from observations. But why it's that, from theory, we don't know. Um, we don't really understand uh, uh, how the planets in the outer parts of the disk get formed before the disk is destroyed. That's the time scale problem. We don't know how typical the solar system is. We don't know what makes the jets. Uh, we don't really know how binary stars and small groups of stars form, but it's now clear from observations just within the last year that uh, many of these uh, multiple star systems also have planetary systems. That was something the basic theory predicted would not be true, so there's a failure of the theory. Uh, this is a tricky pedagogical lecture. I'm trying to give you uh, information and at the same time undermine your uh, confidence in, in what I'm telling you, but not so much that you don't uh, you know, know it when it comes time for the exams and so on. Um, um, we don't know what sets the mass distribution of stars and planets. Stars, in particular, have a very regular mass distribution. Uh, you know, it's a, a power law. The number of stars falls off as you go to higher mass in a certain mathematical way that you would like to understand from the theories, but don't. Uh, we don't know why the exoplanetary systems are, are so diverse as they are. They're, they're, I, I said they were quite different from the solar system. They're also quite different from each other. So it's not like just one process. It's not clear what makes the difference. We don't know how those hot, hot Jupiters is the name for exo, gas giant exoplanets that are very close to their stars, let's say with orbits less, less than 10-day periods. We don't know how they form and exactly what the role of migration is and how that works. Now, for the last uh, three or four minutes uh, or five, I want to say just a few words uh, about a connected uh, topic. Uh, and, but connected in a not particularly obvious way. Uh, when we talk about the origin of life later in the course, and in general in discussions of life in the universe, the, the sort of baseline scenario is that astrophysics supplies you with a nice planet like the Earth, you know, that has a good temperature and a good size and all of that. We'll be talking about in detail what is meant by a nice planet uh, on Monday um, uh, in the next lecture. But somehow a suitable environment uh, is produced by astrophysics, and astrophysics then hands off uh, the planet to the uh, uh, geosciences and biological sciences and so on, uh, who then uh, can understand how life got started and, and diversified and spread and thrived. Uh, in this habitat provided by astrophysical processes. Um, that's the conventional view and probably the correct view, I would say. But there is another uh, hypothesis which is uh, discussed at times, a, a sort of minority view, which is called panspermia. And panspermia, the phrase means life everywhere, and um, it is the idea that life might somehow spread between planets via uh, the exchange of biological material, in particular perhaps uh, spores or microorganisms that are so uh, tough that they can live through a journey through interstellar space. 
The most extreme view of this would be just an, you know, an isolated microbe like in a spore form drifting through space. That's a very, very tough environment from radiation and uh, desiccation, meaning the lack of water and so on. Uh, a somewhat more um, promising version of that is that these uh, microorganisms might have been embedded inside meteors or comets or something of the sort, which uh, collided with the, uh, with, with the planet and brought life there. This is sometimes called lithopanspermia, litho meaning rock, so it's supposed to mean panspermia with, you know, rock. And um, the most extreme version of this is that the rocks are exchanged between planetary systems, you know, that are spread across the galaxy. So somewhere on some planet far away in the galaxy, a meteor hits and splashes material into space, a big thing hits like an asteroid, splashes some material into space, and that goes drifting off through the universe and one day lands on another planet and infects it. It turns out if you do calculations of the probabilities and so on, uh, that looks uh, very, very unlikely. It just wouldn't, you know, you have, it's, it's just the numbers just don't add up very well. Very few planets uh, would ever be lucky enough to get hit by something that was splashed off another planet, and it's hard to imagine the microorganisms surviving for billions of years in interplanetary space. A more probable um, or a more plausible, perhaps, version is that the life is exchanged uh, by... Uh, across inside an individual solar system or maybe between proto-solar systems in the same star-forming regions. These are There the stars and planets are much closer together and the chance of getting material from one to another uh, is much higher. And in particular in our discussion today and, and in the simulations I showed you and so on, you see there's a lot of interaction between the material. There's always things sticking together and merging and falling on to each other. So the thought is that if maybe life is very hard to get started, very rare, but once it gets started, it sort of spreads infectiously between the different planets uh, while uh, during this formation process or soon thereafter uh, when they're, they're exchanging a particularly large amount of material. Um, so there's not much more I want to say about that, except that this is just one of one sort of relatively exotic alternative hypothesis for where life came from on Earth. Uh, it would perhaps explain why Earth life got started on Earth very early, uh, something we may hear about more later in the course. Uh, and this last bullet uh, uh, just refers to the fact that uh, I think I'm a you know that the Earth was seeded intentionally by intelligent extraterrestrials with life. That's, I think it would be fair to say, an extremely uh, speculative hypothesis, but it was put forward by a Nobel Prize winner, so I think we're allowed to mention it. So, okay, so uh, on Monday will be the last of my uh, beginning of the course astrophysics lectures on the, uh, what's it called? The planetary prerequisites for life or something like that. Astrophysical prerequisites.